Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Chag Sameach. Oh, my God, we've got such rich material for us this morning. Um, and you'll see it's perfect for the, exactly this time of year, exactly this Shabbat morning. But we'll get to that in a bit. Let's first thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kiddushanu b'mitzotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Faharev na Adonai Eloheinu. Et divrei Toratcha b'finu, u'b'fi amcha b'et Yisrael, v'nihia anachnu v'tzatzeinu v'tzatzei amcha b'et Yisrael. Kulanu yod'ei shemecha v'londei Toratcha l'shma, baruch atar anoi ha'malamei Torah li'amo Yisrael. Baruch atar anoi aloheinu melech ha'olam, asher b'char banu mikohamim, v'natan lanu et Toratcha, baruch atar anoi n'otein ha'Torah. Oh my gosh, we've got just the richest, one of the richest stories in all of the Talmud. It's from the tractate Menachot, page 29b, and it talks about Rabbi Akiva, who is, as you'll see, acclaimed to be the greatest sage uh, in, the, in the rabbinic period. He's the greatest sage in the Talmud. He is Goat, the greatest of all time from the rabbi's point of view, is Rabbi Akiva. Uh, and you'll see it, th- th- this story speaks to that. And yet it's such a rich story about Rabbi Akiva because there's three vignettes within this story and each one contains a deep question either about Judaism or about Rabbi Akiva. So you're left with the following tension. He's the greatest sage in the history of sages and Lord. There's a lot that undermines that proposition at the same time. So uh, let's get right to it. Uh, the basic, the, the, the notion is that Moses dies and Moses goes to heaven and he sees in heaven God is a sofer, God is a scribe, and God has got a Torah with, uh, with letters on parchment and God has a, you know, a, a sofer's pen, quill, and is adding little crownlets uh, to it, and the um, um, Moses says to God, "Hey, what are you doing?" And God says to Moses, "I am adding little crownlets to the letters of the Torah, and there is going to be a man who is just so amazing. This guy is going to be the greatest rabbi of all time. His name is going to be Akiva ben Joseph." And I'll just read it. Uh, God said to him, "There is one man who is destined." to exist at the end of many generations, Akiva ben Yosef Shamo. Akiva ben Joseph is his name, and he will expound upon each and every one of these little crownlets that I write, Tilin, Tilin, Shahalachot, heaps and heaps of law. As if that's going to be an amaz- amazing thing, that Rabbi Akiva's claim to fame is he's going to get us lots of law. And I wanted to just uh, and, and laws tell us what to do, and when to do it, and where to do it, and how to do it. Halachot tell us, I'm going to give you a set of laws that are going to govern what you do from the beginning of the morning until you go to sleep at night. Laws, halacha, that governs your conduct. And what I want to do, point one, the first question, is, uh, is this a winning strategy? And I just wanted to locate that question. The fact that um, this week, and this was sent in with the rest of the uh, attachment, uh, the Gallup poll released a a survey that showed 
that Americans have never been less into. They've never been less into religion, organized religion, houses of worship than they are today. And this is across the board. Christians have never been less into church than they are today. Muslims have never been less into mosques than they are today. Jews have never been less into synagogues than they are today, with affiliation rates under 50%. And just to frame that, um, years ago, Arne Eisen did a study called The Sovereign Self, where he said Jews don't like being told what to do. That's, I mean, when I was in rabbinical school in the 90s, we were talking about Jews don't like being told what to do. And then came the internet revolution, where you get to be curating your own experience, right? What I do, I'll Google it and I'll figure out what I want to do. I don't want anybody else to tell me. So you have Sovereign Self plus Google. And of course, now you have the pandemic and all of our buildings, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, have been largely closed for a year. So I guess here's my question. Um, what is the winning strategy to respond to that? This is a, a period of ferment, and we're going to be coming out of this pandemic. We're in this murky post-pandemic phase now with vaccinations. It's murky. It's gray. But it's a, it's a different place than last year. Um, how do we capture the opportunities of this moment? Atilin, Tilin, Shalhalachot, heaps and heaps of laws. It's not our move. What is our move, Elisa Berger? Uh, what is our move? Uh, I think this is such an interesting text to start with because um, in some ways it makes me think back to the four children at our Seder table and how each child learns. And here's God like hanging out in Shemaim, like doing God's thing, really enjoying spirituality, enjoying connection to Torah. And Moses like is like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you up to? How are you up to it? And God's like, Psh, like somebody else will explain it to you later on. I'm like, I'm busy, leave me alone. And that feels like you know a very interesting moment like what is what is happening in this in this story and in our world i think part of it is how we share what to do like and i don't know i wasn't i wasn't around in a in a very conscious way um when the sovereign self was being discussed and and thinking about how jews don't like to be told what to do but the sense that i've gotten in some communities that i've been a part of is that there's this tone of like how could you not know? Like it, everybody knows this thing. Then how we do it? Like what's your problem? You don't understand that. Um, and so I think we're in a in a place where we have some major culture shifts to do in how we teach. And I don't necessarily think that heaps and heaps of halachos is the, is a wrong move. Um, I think the question we have is like how do we share the heaps and heaps of halachot in a way that's not the way that God does, in a way that invites people in, and in a way that that we all become co-creators and co-collaborators. Mm. Elias, can you think of, of examples of, you know, of ambassadors for our tradition that actually positively represent it and, and, and own it on their own? Uh, good question, my dear Wes. Uh, we had the wonderful news this week of a um, wonderful uh, Temple Emmanuel young adult who is living right now in Hong Kong. And he, the mother, very proudly sent us uh, an email with pictures of him leading um, Pesach Seder in Hong Kong. And, 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 and the majority of people there were natives of, of the country. And he was the ambassador. In other words, taking all the traditions of the Jewish tradition that we have to say, in a way, 
part of what he learned here now you know in our synagogue and showing that to the world teaching that to the world tailoring his own way to show the world what he learned and what he can do and Elias, if you were to reverse engineer this success story this is somebody who doesn't have to do jewish this is somebody who's choosing to do jewish and not only to do jewish but to teach jewish in Hong Kong in a pandemic, right? So he's all, again, Jews don't like being told what to do. The key about this is he wants to do it. He's not told he has to do it. He wants to do it. He chooses to do it. If you were to look at that case as, a, as, as an example of, of something we want to emulate and you were to reverse engineer it, what do we learn from this so that we can have lots of our kids, lots of our members uh, just spreading Judaism because they love it so much. But I want to believe that, you know, the, the, the education and the experience he had here with us has been somehow impactful in his life. All right. Um, so the story is that way back, he and his twin brother were bar mitzvah here. Then and I taught one of the, each one of them for bar mitzvah. But then every Friday night that was the anniversary of their own bar mitzvah, they would come and they would lead services in the chapel. And... Uh, so there was something obviously about uh, Judaism that perhaps we as an entire community were able to transmit to him mm. that he really was able to grasp and, and make it his own. Mm. Um, that's what we do. That's why, you know, we have so many things that we do here for, for engagement and, you know, all the teens programs we have through music and through, you know, teaching Rosh Chodesh and all those kind of things that we hope that eventually once they go off to college, they will carry all this knowledge with them, and they will become the ambassadors. Mm. Now, Dan, you are the uh, only person here who is the father of a college-age young person, <laughs> right? Yes, you know, that, that's in college. That is correct. Uh, what's, um, from your point of view, both as somebody who literally lives here and also who is, is raising a college-age daughter, mm. um, how can, in this post-pandemic murky place that we're in, what's our move to make Judaism absolutely compelling so that our college-age kids will want to say yes to it, like uh, Elias' story? That's a really hard question. I, I can only speak for what's happening in my home, which <clears throat> is that, um, that Emma is really, I mean, she doesn't come to shul, but she's very connected to her Judaism. Um, you know, she... Um, she, she really reveled in the in the Tusadarim that we went to. Um, you know, I just remember when she was off uh, uh, snowboarding in Oregon, and she went. Uh, she was in Sandy, Oregon, near uh, near um, Mount Hood, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and um, and she, you know, it's really hard to find kosher food there, and she really wanted to keep Passover, and she went. She finally found a market that had a box a box of matzah, which cost something like six dollars for the one box of matzah, mm. uh, and then she brought it back to her room. And then she then she read the box afterwards, and it said, uh, "Not you've not for use on Passover." And she was she called me up, and she was so distraught. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Mm. So, so she has a connection to Judaism. Not not that she dovens regularly, but she has a connection to, um, you know, to uh, to Judaism, traditional Judaism, and understanding. But she also has. She also had, this is just about her, you know, I can't really speak for other, other college students, but mm. um, she also has an idea of what prayer should be and what prayer shouldn't be, you know, the, 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 you know, the sovereign self. You know, prayer doesn't necessarily have to be all the words on the page. Um, and so it, this, is, this is a certain, I think, um, you know, Hasidic move to her, uh, to her that, which is that, you know, um, 
prayer can be moving when it comes directly from your soul. The way that we find, the way we find prayer in the, um, you know, in the in the Torah versus you know later, mm. where you know prayer prayer is always spontaneous uh, mm. in the Torah. It comes directly from you know from a moment where you, where you really want to connect. I was also thinking about. Um, you know about the the what we, we we might call the average Jew. You know, um, you know pre-temple times. Uh, you know, and the average Jew pre-temple times. You know, they got up in the morning. They didn't put on tefillin. They didn't. Uh, they didn't daven. They got up and they, you know, fed the cows and they worked the fields and then you know and then came home and uh, and the day was done. Um, did they connect with God? I and mean, how did they connect with God? And it really had to do with um, more with leaving it to um to others to do you know uh, eventually we had the whole the whole levitical cast doing doing what mm. they do and this goes really back to elisa's point that you know people connect to their judaism to our judaism uh in different ways you know we some people connect right. through just closing their eyes and feeling a spiritual moment some people connect through looking at the minutia um, right. And the other thing I was just thinking, just a real quick thing, I was thinking about, you know, that there are actually there's actually a whole school of sofrut for Sifrei Torah, that um, in which there are no decorations on the letters. And so, what what would you say? You know, I was thinking, what do we do about that? We actually have one of those scrolls in our in our in our uh, in our ark in the chapel. And if you look at that, this, it 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 strikes you. The first thing you open the scroll, say, there's no decorations on these letters. So how do I then look at the minutia upon the minutia upon the minutia that that God supposedly wrote, uh, right. and, and what, uh, what the people that, that decided on this particular school of so fruit, what compelled them not to put decorations on it? Mm. You know, I, I don't so, know. Well, I guess I, so, so I'm going to close this, this piece out because we have so much more to discuss. Thank you all, colleagues. I want to leave you uh, at home with some spiritual homework, which is um, this is a, a, a moment of ferment and of opportunity uh, where, where we have to reimagine our relationship to synagogue and to institutions, that's the clear message of the Gallup poll. Um, and I think it's an opportunity for recreation and, and reimagination and renewal and rejuvenation. And, and here's the question for you, as, as you back home are emerging from this phase, you know, the Red Sox have fans and the, the Bruins have fans and the right uh, Celtics have fans and you're beginning to emerge into a whole new world scarily and, and, and tentatively. Uh, but we're beginning to be in a different place. Um, how can Judaism be the answer to the problems posed by life? And what can we do to help? Um, and, so, and so now we're going to move to uh, a second a vignette, which is um, Moses sees that there's going to be this great rabbi, the goat, the greatest of all time, Joseph ben Akiva, Akiva ben Joseph. And Moses goes to a class that Akiva ben Joseph is teaching his students in the yeshiva. And Moses, Moses, the five books of Moses, is utterly lost in this class. This is a class of Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition, the Talmud, the mission of the Talmud, and Moses can't follow it, and he's just utterly lost. And one of the students of Rabbi Akiva asked Rabbi Akiva, hey, how do you know that? And this is very meta. Mo, uh, Rabbi Akiva says, oh, it's halacha Moshe misinai. That's a law from Moses at Sinai. How do I know it? Moses told me. And Moses, meanwhile, can't even follow the class. So the point of the class is that Akiva ben Joseph is just so genius with Jewish law and that he's creating a whole new tradition, the 60-plus tractates of the, of, the, of, of the Talmud. Now, 
if that's all we had, you would say, okay, cool. We have the oral law, the written law. He's the master of the oral law. There's only one problem, and this problem is why I brought you this text now. If, you'll, if, uh, if you don't happen to have the text, I'll just tell you about it. But if you have it, it's on page 5. The Talmud, in a separate tractate, Yivamot 62, tells us that Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students, disciples, so 24,000 students, and they all died between Pesach and Shavuot. They all died this time of year. After Pesach, before Shavuot, 24,000 dead students. And we know that they died of a medical condition um, called uh, Askera, um, which is uh, an inflammation of the throat. It sounds like 24,000 people dying at the same time from a medical thing that blocks their breathing sounds an awful lot like a plague. It sounds an awful lot like something all too familiar to us, right? But the Talmud doesn't leave it at that. The Talmud says, ah, why did they die? They died because these yeshiva students did not treat each other with respect. So you're, when you put these two texts together, the main text from Menachot and this other text from Yavamot, you have the following. You have Rabbi Akiva is this great teacher, so great he's even greater than Moses, so great Moses can't even follow. And he's just, you know, crowns on crowns on crowns, heaps and heaps and heaps of law. And yet, his seem, he seems to have missed the main point. The main point of Torah is that you treat each other with respect. Think Rabbi Chill. Think Rabbi Chill's voice. Think Rabbi Chill's vibe. Think Rabbi Chill's ethic. Think Rabbi Chill's humanity. The main point of this whole thing is menschlichkeit. The main point of this whole thing is respect and dignity. And so here you have Rabbi Akiva... Uh, teaching 24,000 students who all missed the point about menschlichkeit and dignity. So here's my question. First of all, what do you make of that? How do you put Menachad and Yavamot together, the greatest teacher whose students miss out on that main point? And what does this say to us about do we miss out on the main point? Aliza? Uh, well, I think one of the things that's so interesting about Rabbi Akiva is on the one hand, he's total love. I mean, he has this amazing love affair with his wife and she nurtures his studies and he's um, he's able to grasp sort of the heart of Torah. And on the other hand, he was a late bloomer in terms of his scholarship. And so I think he always may have had a sort of a chip on his shoulder. Like, I'm not good enough. Like, some people going to see through me. They're going to see that I don't actually know that I don't actually, I didn't come from this world. I wasn't raised in this world. And so I think it's possible that that creates a kind of teacher that he doesn't he doesn't imagine himself to be, um, and so I think it's a really important teaching for all of us that a um, it's really important to be clear about our own places of of concern and weakness and and worry because those can come out in unexpected ways. And it's also important to just get reality checks together. I think especially as we're building community, like. Is this program, is this, is this, am I coming across the way that I intend to be coming across and can we build that together? Do we ever, and I throw this out to, to everybody, do we ever miss the point? I mean, when you look at these two texts, we the reader, reading these all these years later, we see, hey, all those laws are fine, but, you know, y you treat each other with so little respect that the Talmud says you died because you couldn't be mentions. You miss the point. Do we ever do that? Do we ever miss the point? 
Mr. Nessa. Yeah, I I think we do. I was, I was thinking of the, was it a number of years ago that people would not eat broccoli because someone took like a, a microscope and found like these microscopic things in the broccoli and therefore it wasn't kosher. It's like that's that's missing the point. But that's not what yeah. we don't do that. I, no, I, no, I would bet we, that in the eighty year history of Temple Emanuel, there has been no <laughs> Temple Emanuel member who wouldn't eat broccoli because insects. My question is on self scrutiny. Okay. When us, us do we miss the point? Okay. When do we at Temple Emanuel when do the when does the clergy team of Temple Emanuel do our own version yeah. of Rabbi Akiva. When do we things? miss the point? Can yeah. I say a few things? So, first of all, I don't believe that they died, the 13,000 people or 26 or whatever the number 24,000, yeah. They died of a virus. They died of uh, excess of matzah because it was <laughs> during Pesach and Shavuot. They <laughs> choke with it. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's be realistic here. Uh, second, I mean, could it be, I'm, I'm, I'm just staying in the balcony. Could it be that, I know that the, the story in the Talmud, they want to create something to teach the next generation, but could it be that they just simple died because of a virus? Yeah, I'm and sure not, that... And not because of their behavior? Right. I'm sure the, the actual answer to your question is yes, they probably died because they had their own version of a virus, their own version of a plague. But what's interesting is that the editors of the Talmud didn't leave it at that, and they could have. They could have said, Nebuch, just like this plague, there's a plague, and it afflicted our people. And But they don't, they don't accept that. They say, no, they couldn't treat each other with respect. So okay. my question is, so they're going out of their way. So to, yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, there are, there are beautiful things. That's a beautiful, um, a very optimistic teaching for life, that when you don't do something well, something is going to happen to you. I hope the world will be like that. It's kind of a fantasy because we see so many people doing evil mm. and there is no, nobody strikes at him a virus or something and they die. Uh, the second thing is that obviously having knowledge doesn't mean that you have experience in life and teaching the real things that you have to teach to be successful mm. human beings. Yeah. Uh, so that could be one of the views of this uh, text of you know having so much knowledge and taking so far all the Torah Sinai doesn't translate in being good human beings with respect and, and, and other things. And and regards to your question, Wes, um, obviously that at some point we have missed the boat. Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> but it will be kind of a very, you know, f full of ourselves thinking that we never missed the boat. Yeah. So I'll just say, I'll put this out there, and this is going to connect with the fourth point in the middle. I... And this is a theme that is just far longer than this class. But I always wrestle with the question of religion and politics, with the issues of the day and the issues in the Torah portion. And it's just so much easier, and it's just so much safer, and it's just so much more comfortable to deal with uh, the Torah portion. You know, you never get in trouble talking about Moses and Jacob and Sarah and Aaron and Miriam. You never get in trouble talking about that. But if all you do is talk about that, you're not really relevant to the world. And it's when we talk about the, the, the message of the text to the context of our own time, and we deal with messy, divisive issues, that's when I worry that I uh, inadvertently, despite my best efforts, miss the boat. I piss off people. I antagonize people. I alienate people. And, and then I think, well, I'll be silent so as I, to not do that. And then I'm not resting either because if I'm silent, then... Are we doing our job? Am I doing my job? So uh, we'll come back to that a little bit more with religion and politics. I want to move because we just have so much material. We've got a third point, which is, um, so Moses is up there with God, 
and learns that there's this great Akiva ben Yosef, and Moses goes to this class and can't even follow it. And then Moses turns to God and says, wow, so this is the greatest of all time. He's the greatest rabbi. Show me his reward. What ends up happening to him? Does he get, you know, in, does he get entered into the Hall of Fame of great, of great rabbis? Does he get a nice uh, you know, apartment in Jerusalem and uh, you know, a sinecure and a scholarship and he gets to just uh, walk down Ben Yehuda Street and have you know, cappuccino all day. What ends up happening to, to, to Akiva Ben Yosef? I would take Tel Aviv with Ocean View. Okay, you could do that. And, uh, and God says, okay, you want to know Moses? I'll show you. And God turns Moses around and says, that's what happens to Rabbi Akiva. And what Moses sees is Rabbi Akiva getting executed in a particularly cruel way by the Romans. And, uh, and Moses says to God, that is his Torah and that is his reward. You know, he's the greatest rabbi and he's taken your written Torah and made such a wonderful uh, infrastructure of oral Torah. He's the greatest of all time. That's his Torah and this is a reward that he gets executed by by the Romans, and God says, Stoke, which is shut up. Shut up. Or if you want to be a little less harsh, hush. And then God says, uh, This is my plan, and you don't get to know about it, and, and I've got my reasons, and I've got my plan. So you are left. The third, the third troubling aspect of this text is the greatest rabbi of all time is... is cruelly executed by Rome, and God won't talk about it. And we're just left with a really bad thing happening to a really good person. And the moral and the message of this story seems to be, just accept it. It's God's ways. Uh, what do you make of this text? Yeah, I mean, this actually appears in this week's Parsha. You know, this is Nadav and Avihu is in this Parsha, right? So, um, and then Aaron is, uh, is Vayidom, right? He's just silent. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't love this moment because it just seems that um, this is when this is when God should be stepping up and saying, um, you know, that Torah is Torah and teaching is fabulous and it's the right thing to do, uh, and the world is the the world is not the most principled place, and the job of Torah and the job of teaching Torah is to try to teach people to be respectful and loving to one another. That's a very huge aspect of it. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't happen, and we just have to keep trying. This is, this is what I think God's message should be at this point. And instead, he just says, you know, hey, you know what? Uh, you don't get it, and um, I, I can't explain it to you. And it's, just, uh, it's, like, it's like when a child asks a question, and you, and you put them off without just saying right. because, right? It's, a, it's not an answer. Uh, it's um, it's a, it's actually avoiding the answer. So let me ask you this question, guys. Um, you know, more than five hundred and more than five hundred thousand Americans have died from this plague, and you know, so many worldwide have died from this plague. Um, what is God's role? Um, I take it if if the answer was Stoke, be quiet. It's not. You know, it's above your pay grade. God has His plan. That probably wouldn't work for you. Although if it does, tell us. But what would work for you? What, what, what theology would work for you today to explain the world that we're actually living in right now? To me, uh, going back to what the end of the story and also with this, the virus, if God has hands, okay, he, she, it, they, whatever, 
um, she will be opening their hands and saying, there are things I cannot fix. Right. Which is, by the way, uh, the theology of Harold Kushner and when bad things happen to good people. That God does not intervene, God can't intervene. That what God does is uh, give us presence so that we're not alone. And God gives us courage so that we can be the best version of ourselves. But God doesn't come in and, and solve. And it also means that God doesn't punish and God doesn't select this person for the plague and not that person. Uh, Elisa, you got other thoughts? So it's, it's really interesting. One of the things that's coming up for me thinking about Rabbi Akiva and his students and God is the way that generational trauma moves through uh, the generations. Um, and I was thinking particularly about um, something that happened in my family. My dad's grandparents, um, both were survivors and both escaped and they came to this country. I didn't know my great-grandfather, but I did know my great-grandmother and um, they were both like the most positive, loving people you'd ever met, like full of laughter and joy and jokes and um, like sweet words in Yiddish and just like love, like uh, total love. And they had two kids and both of their kids, um, two girls, were sort of like presented the opposite way. Like they were... Um, my grandmother and my great aunt were both um, really struggled with negativity and fighting, and and were were not warm in the same way. They were they were much colder and and much more distant, and didn't quite know how to be um, with us as kids, particularly. And it was such an interesting thing to see my great grandparents, who were just like total love, and then my grandparents' generation, who were were like it was very difficult to have a conversation with them and. And like as a kid, I used to work to keep them on the phone because my grandmother would just like get done with the conversation and, and hang up. And I think that all speaks to this this way of generational trauma. And I think um, in this, if we read the story as a story of generational trauma, as a Kiva having his own stuff that he hasn't processed through, and it gets passed down to his students who then are sort of haplessly mm. taking on the the qualities that aren't spoken about. Because I, you know, my great grandparents, I imagine, had a lot of trauma escaping and coming to the new, the new world and figuring out their lives. And they didn't, they, they made a conscious choice not to let that come through. But if the things that you suppress will come up again. And so it makes me think that there's some of that going on with Akiva and, and even some of that with God, right? When God sees what's happening to Akiva and that's like the literal, like he's being torn apart and that is an expression. He's of literally how, being torn, literally apart. being torn apart. And that's also, I think so, someone of maybe how he felt um, in his life as a, as an, as a, you know, things weren't working out for him. And God is like, it's so, like, I can't deal with generational, I have my own generational trauma. Like, I, this is, my tra trauma causes me to just tell you to shut up instead mm. of engaging with you. And so it feels like this whole story about unconscious actions and the way that our unconscious can dominate the world. Mm. If we don't, if we're not, if we're not aware of it, we're not working hard at it. So just, I mean, we don't have near enough time to really do justice to what you just shared, but just real quick, like, um, your great-grandparents who are survivors and they were so positive, but this unconscious, subconscious stuff that somehow seeps in and it, and it had deleterious effects on their children, uh, your, your grandmother and her sister. I guess my quick question is, how else might they have handled that? Uh, they were trying to be upbeat and, and resilient. How else? What, what, what's the best way, what's the right way to deal with generational trauma 
so they don't pass negative energy down to the generations. I'm I'm not even gonna you know I have no concept even of all the trauma that they had in their lives like that just feels like way beyond anything that I could ever speak to, um, and I think that in whatever small ways you know each one of us carries trauma and it, the ways in which um, you know we all get triggered and and when we are unconscious about what we're carrying we're we're more trigger prone. Um, I I think there's something in that and I think that truly in Jewish community there's an element of this, right? There's an element of we're all um, sort of, we're all survivors carrying this trauma and carrying this intensity and and there are ways in which Jewishly respond to situations by being like, right. just be quiet. This, the, there's not, not a time to ask questions. This is what we do. Stand up, sit down, don't write. You know, like all of this stuff and so mm. I think when we're able to process, and, you know, it gets back to our original question, like what, what makes people want to be a part of community? I think not when we're able to do our work of healing and then to be a space of love and joy and to be a space where we can hold all that, but we're consciously working on it together. That I think is the goal of this. Okay. So now that's a perfect segue to our fourth and final point. And this to me is the richest part of the whole text. And it's not in the text. It's very meta. Okay. And by that, I mean the following. Moses asks, hey, why does Rabbi Akiva get torn apart by the Romans? And he doesn't know the answer to that. And God won't tell him the answer to that. But the meta part is that we, the reader, know why Rabbi Akiva is torn apart by the Romans. We know what Moses doesn't know, and we know what God isn't saying. So what we know from it, and it's also in the text, or in, in the attachment, but I'll just tell you, is that uh, Rabbi Akiva, this greatest sage of all time, gets involved in politics, and he bets on the wrong course. And the story is that uh, this is around the year 132 of the Common Era, the second century of the Common Era. And there's, you know, the, the Jews in Judea are living under the thumb of the Roman government. And there's this ruffian strongman named Ben Kosiba, the son of Kosiba, who's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. And he says, let's fight the Romans. And Rabbi Akiva says, wow, this guy is, is really a tough guy. And Rabbi Akiva himself invests Rabbi Akiva's prestige, Rabbi Akiva's endorsement, and says, this guy is not Bar Kosiba, that's his actual name, he's Bar Kochba, Kochav is star. And then Rabbi Akiva quotes some verse that this guy is the Messiah. This guy is the Messiah. I'm going to change his name from Bar Kosiba to Bar Kochba, the son of a star, because he is the Messiah, and I support him. Let's follow him, says Rabbi Akiva. And the text that I sent, sent you, other rabbis say, Rabbi Akiva, don't get involved in politics. Don't pick Bar Kosiba. You're betting on the wrong course. And by the way, you're going to die. You are going to die because of the choice you just made. Now, in the text from Menachot, you know, Moses doesn't know that, but we, the reader, know that because we know these other texts. So bottom line, here's the irony, greatest sage in the history of the Talmud, greatest rabbi of all the rabbis in the Talmud, gets involved in politics, bets on the wrong course, and not only does he die, but Betar is swimming in Jewish blood. This is considered an epic disaster. This is considered not a bad choice. This is considered a catastrophic, cataclysmic, generationally bad choice. So, dear colleagues, how do we make sense of the fact that the greatest rabbi of all time also made a really disastrous, catastrophic, cataclysmic political choice, which cost him his own life and the life of the Jewish community. And what do we learn from that? 
Um, this is really complex. I mean, I, I just think that, you know, being, uh, this is where Torah and the real world intersect, right? Because so, Torah should be about the real world. Um, like we think about, you know, Parshat Mishpatim, these are the laws, and the laws, they, they, there's no differentiation between what we'd call civil society and religious, uh, religious law. It's all the same. So Torah should be about how, how we intersect with the real world. Um, yet, on the other hand, um, maybe with Rabbi Akiva, for example, I think what he's, that he's a great Torah scholar in the minutia of Jewish law, you know, the crowns on the crowns and the crowns and the points and the points, but maybe he's just not seeing clearly um, the, the connection between those, that minutia and, um, and the real world. Uh, and, but the other thing that I think that, I really think that um, it's such a conundrum that Torah is, should be about, about all of us, you know, connecting with each other. And, and the body politic, you know, the body politic should be not differentiated from Torah. But I think that many Torah scholars, and, you know, even starting before Kiva, we're not we're not making that connection. So let me and, just and, and uh, just one yeah. thing. So you know, uh, he said I just just don't think he was you know he was reading reading the political landscape um, accurately just because he was more steeped in minutia of of right. you know sacrificial law etc. and not not looking at the bigger picture. Right. So again, here's my question. I want to bring this to a point, and I want to make it real, and I want to make it current, and I want to make it personal. Um, all of us. Uh, and Michelle as well, signed the Veterans Day uh, email that went out. Um, and that, I think, on the day that I die, I will not know whether that was the right move or the wrong move. To this day, I don't know whether that was the right move or the wrong move, because, it, because it's definitely the wrong move in terms of, of, of Elisa's last point, a place of love and joy and peace and companionship, uh, because as a result of that, a lot of people said, Temple Manual's not for me. You know, this has a political bent, and I'm not with your politics, and Temple Man is not for me. So the Veterans Day email really undermined the principle of uh, space for all of us. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, all of us had very significant, you know, moral concerns about the moral character and the character of our democracy, and it was just exploding in us. Um, and so to this day, I don't know how to do this right. And by the way, these issues never die. Here's another issue. I don't know what to do right. You know, with uh, like the Georgia, the Georgia legislation that would seek to disenfranchise a lot of voters. Should a synagogue be silent about that uh, so that it can be a place of love and joy? But then to make it a place of love and joy, do we purchase that through our own irrelevance? If we're relevant and we talk about that, then we're no longer a place of love and joy. So is there a way to do this right? Tanta Rosenberg. Thank you, Rabbi Garden Schwartz. Uh, is my position uh, by yeah. you? By yeah. you is the twelve million dollar position. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be completely honest, and you all know how I feel about this. Uh, I think um, religion and politics should be separated. And answering your question, and now I can tie this answer to a previous question that you've done. Uh, I regret signing that letter, and you know about that. I regret signing the letter of Veterans Day. Uh, regardless of my personal position of what I understand happened, okay, I believe that it wasn't my place to sign that letter as a religious leader. That's my view. I think politics and it's it's a bad combo. 
It's a terrible combo. I strongly believe the synagogue should be a place for all. And um, all the political sides should be left, you know, checking the coat room when people used to come and, and leave coats there and uh, be a well, place for all. Okay, so uh, Elisa, why don't I let you handle that one? I, I got I got my own questions, but since my questions came from you, I thought uh, I'll let you ask those questions of our dear colleague. So I, I think it's a really interesting challenge, which is how do we how do we create a space in which people feel authentically welcome to come and to be here and to be enjoy it? I'm not sure that leaving politics outside the door is the is the way to achieve that. I think we've gotten to a place of such toxic discourse that that we've unlearned the ways that we can have disagreement together and that we can think together and we can talk together. And I think we as a community have, have been doing a really important work um, since I've been here about how do we have these conversations, how do we do that. I think uh, like on a personal note, I feel very concerned that our activist muscles are atrophied. I, I'm in a, a part of a group of um, clergy activists, and one of the conversations we had recently, a colleague of mine, Rabbi Elizabeth uh, Bonnie Cohen, mentioned that um, the last big, like, if you think of like an epic civil rights hero in the Jewish world, it was Heschel. The last one was Heschel. And though there are lots of people that are working hard in the Jewish world today to, to promote justice and to work for justice, there's no one person that everyone across the spectrum would say like, oh, that's, you know, like, there, there are no pictures, iconic pictures of Jews today doing the kind of work that Heschel was doing in the 60s and 70s. And so we have, I think, work to do to be back on our, to be back reclaiming our narrative and our story in order to promote justice, in order to promote access, in order to promote inclusion. And there are lots of ways. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was I was at the Newton um, vigil honoring Asian Americans and, and the acts of rising acts of violence that have been targeting Asian community members and it was just as I was standing there listening to all of these stories and all of the intense persecution that Asians have suffered in the United States which at least in the circles that I frequent like almost no one talks about that and here I was and I was just the, the whole time I was listening to all these speakers thinking oh my god like we just we missed it like we lived this in Europe we lived being persecuted. We lived being beat up on the streets and police just watching and shutting the doors. We lived that and that's not making us do anything right now. So I, there's like the tension in this story and I think um, with, with Akiva and with us, which is we don't wanna make the wrong bet. We have the sense that if we pick the wrong stand, if we take the wrong politics, that we're gonna be torn apart like Akiva and it's gonna tear apart our whole community and we're gonna lose our safety, and we're gonna lose our security, and we're gonna be back there. But I think the very same thing could happen if we don't take action. So I, yeah, I think that's yeah. our challenge. Can I say something? Yeah. I, I, I completely respect your position. And, and yes, one of the most iconic pictures of the conservative movement is Rabbi Heschel doing that march. One topic of discussion we can do later in another class <laughs> is I'm really concerned when there are people very investing in doing what is right for others which is in this case the Asian American and discrimination, which is absolutely true and it's necessary to do it. But when that becomes more important than our own suffering as a Jewish people, and when people do that and completely have no idea about some 
own sufferings that the Jewish people has has passed. But it's not a zero-sum game. No, I know, but you're assuming that a lot of people, you said it, we've been through that and we've, you know, the, that was the Holocaust and many people don't know about so, the Holocaust. So, Elias, here, here's my question to you. And then, I mean, the good news is this is, we, we can't solve this. That's why the, fir the first page in the Talmud is page two because there's no beginning and there's no end. But here's the question for Elias and here's the question for you. And I want to leave everybody on this last issue of Rabbi Akiva and politics and religion with an unsettling question. And here's the question I want to leave you with. Let's say you take the position that the lesson of Rabbi Akiva being torn apart was don't get involved in politics. By the way, you know, my best friend and soulmate and the wisest person I know is my wife, Shira. She strongly advised against sending the Veterans Day email. I, in 38 years of marriage, have almost never not done what she says. I always do what she says. That was one of the only times I ever didn't do what she said. She said, don't send it. I said, I have to send it. And Shira's basic posture is stay away from politics. The only other way she articulates that is stay far away from politics. That's my wife. Stay far away from politics, okay? So here's what I want to say. If you happen to hold that position, like my beloved, if you say the lesson of Rabbi Akiva is stay away from politics, like Elias is saying, I regret the veteran's email. Here's my question. I want to leave it with you. And by the way, I got this question from my friend Elisa, okay? If you would protest anti-Semitism, Let's say after Pittsburgh or after San Diego, you would go to the state house and protest. We they shouldn't get, can't kill Jews. Jewish blood is not free, right? Then how do you not do that when blacks are under attack? And how do you not do that when people of color are under attack? And how do you not do that when Asian uh, Americans and Pacific Islanders are under attack, right? Is the position you really want to take, we will represent ourselves when Jews are under attack, but if blacks are, eh, we're a place of love and joy. If Browns are under attack, eh, we're a place of love and joy. If Pacific Islanders and Asian Americans are attacked, eh, that's their issue. We're a place of joy. We're just going to sing. But only when Jews are under attack, now, now we're marching. I'm not comfortable with that. So I want to ask you to think about that. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everybody.